Good morning. Uh, one thing that I want to draw to your attention that wasn't printed in the bulletin was my uh, oversight on next Sunday's baptism service. Uh, we're going to be having a full service, so we're beginning at 10 o'clock. So please be here at, at 10 o'clock next Sunday morning for our baptism service. We're also going to be uh, sharing in communion, and so we look forward to next Sunday. It's going to be uh, an exciting, tremendous Sunday uh, as three uh, young women are being baptized and committing themselves in a public way to the waters of baptism following the Lord Jesus. And so we just uh, look forward to that, and I hope you are as well. It's been, uh, let's say, an adventuresome catechism class, baptism classes that we've been going through. Uh, the topics that we cover from week to week uh, can vary wildly, and yet it is... Uh, it has just been tremendous to hear their enthusiasm and their thirst and desire to learn and the questions they ask sometimes have me stumped, so that's always a, a good thing too. I say, I'll get back to you on that one, but uh, it's, been, it's been excellent, and so we're looking forward to that next Sunday, 10 o'clock. Uh, yeah, look forward to that. This morning we are continuing in our series Green and Growing, and part four today is Growing in Discernment. And that will be our subject for today's study. Would you bow with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your daily presence in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for each new day that you give us, even as we sang earlier, that this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And so we thank you for this day. We thank you for another opportunity, Lord, to hear from your word and to worship you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, be very present here in this time. Would you open our hearts? Would you give us understanding? And I ask, Lord, that you would give me boldness and wisdom to share what you've laid on my heart for this message, Lord. Would you speak through me? Would the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a story I'd like to begin with about a little boy who was misbehaving so badly that his frustrated mother sent him to bed early with the stern admonition. Now, remember to say your bedtime prayers, and maybe, just maybe, you should ask God to help you be a better boy. Well, she sent him off to bed, and a few minutes later, she poked her head through the bedroom door to see if he was actually obeying for once. And to her surprise, there he was, kneeling beside his bed, hands folded, eyes closed, head bowed. Her heart softened, warming at the sight of her son finally listening to her, finally being obedient. And so she paused to listen in on what his prayer might be. And here was his prayer. Dear Lord, please help me to be a better boy. But if you can't, don't worry about it. I'm having a really good time just the way I am. The honesty of children's prayers. I think there was never a more honest prayer in the world than that one. You know, when I think about that little boy's prayer, I think that his honesty can be reflected in a lot of our lives if we were to really be honest about it as well. We want God to change us. We want to grow and mature. And yet, so often, we don't want him to change us too much. We don't want us to take those things in our life that we're having a really good time with, we don't want him to take those things away. And so we can identify with that little boy. But as we continue in our series on green and growing, we are reminded again from our key verse, 
Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, that growth and change is not optional for a child of God. No, it is mandatory. It is an imperative, a command. Listen again. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This word grow is a command, an imperative that can be understood even more clearly from the original text to be uh, understood as, but keep on growing. Not just a one-time event, but a continual event of growth. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Keep on growing. Now, in part three of our series, we looked at growing in trust. And it's been interesting how in the couple of weeks since then, in some different scenarios and people I've spoken with who have talked to me about how growing in trust has not been something that happens in a static environment. No, growing in trust is something that happens in a dynamic environment where we are forced to trust, where things are outside of our control to do anything about. And so there's no alternative but to trust that God will provide. And it's been really neat to see how he's been working in some people's lives in this area, teaching them to grow in trust. Trust is something that happens when we are stretched. And we think of examples throughout Scripture that point to that. Abraham having to up and leave to go where? God didn't say. Just travel. And we see him growing in trust as a result. Peter getting out of the boat. You know, this was a a sink or swim scenario. He had to trust that, that Jesus was going to have him walk on the water and not sink. He had to do something. It wasn't just staying in the boat. He had to step out. And so, as we think of growing in trust today in part four, I want to focus our attention in on something that we don't think about all that often. We talked about it at youth group last night. And the subject of discernment. Now, what is discernment? Well, I want to focus your attention on the type of discernment that Scripture primarily speaks about, which is this. The ability to distinguish the difference between what is true and what is false. So, when we're talking about discernment, we are referring to the ability... The, the uh, ability of a person, the skill of an individual to look at something and assess correctly whether or not this is actually true or whether this is false, whether this is good or whether it's bad or somewhere in between, the ability to discern. This is what scripture is primarily referring to when we speak about discernment. Now I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says, and if you have your Bibles you can turn there with me. We'll be flipping around to a couple of different passages this morning. The first one I want to draw your attention to is uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul writes to them, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern, there's that word, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, discernment is not just a matter of, you know, if something is sin or not sin in the life of a Christian. Discernment is also about being able to see what is best. You see, God doesn't just want the mediocre or the the lowest common level for the Christian life. No, he wants you to be able to see what is best for your life. To see what he has in store for you that's not just ho-hum, but that is the very top level of what he wants for your life. What is best? Paul used that word. And then he goes on to say, so that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. Is that your desire? 
to be pure and blameless or is just kind of getting by, ho-hum, you know, I'm not so bad. Is that what we're aiming for? Are we aiming for mediocrity? Or like Paul, are we aiming to be pure and blameless? That's a high standard. Blameless, of course, isn't saying sinless or that you've never sinned, but blameless is to point out that we are living free from habitual sin, free from, from harboring any sin that has been um, not confessed or repented of, and so we are living blameless before the Lord. That is our goal as Christians. And so Paul says in order to reach that goal, we need to have discernment. And so increased discernment was Paul's prayer for the Christians in Philippi, and I am certain that it would be his prayer for the church in Clarny as well. Now, discernment at its most basic level is something that we all use every single day of our lives. For the most mundane things to the bigger decisions in life. For example, the phone rings at supper time, of course. You're thinking it's probably a telemarketer, but you're not sure. So it could be a family member. You pick up the phone. There's that pause. You're like, oh, shoot, I should have hung up, but you didn't. Some guy with an accent says, can I have five minutes of your time? And so in that moment, you have to try to discern if this telemarketer is legitimate or trying to just take you for a ride with something. Or then maybe you try to discern if that 10 o'clock nightly news that you watched was actually giving you the whole story or simply some version of the truth. You have to discern these things. You know, world events, things going on on a grand scale. What is the news really telling us? And is this the whole story? We have to discern these things. Ditto for that juicy rumor you maybe heard at the coffee shop or the restaurant. You know, we have to discern, is this the whole story or just one person's version of the truth? And as we look around, you know, all the different places in business, we have to discern if someone or something is on the up and up. You have to discern if that used car salesman is telling you the whole truth about the car's history or if it was actually one of those reclamation projects from a flood zone that the floorboards are going to rust out on in six months. Right? You've heard about these horror stories. You've got to discern these things. And so we are using discernment almost every single day. Whether it's someone who's also being really nice to us, and you think, do they really want to be my friend, or are they just angling to get something out of me? These are the sorts of things that we use discernment with constantly. Now, of course, people's ability to discern these things correctly varies wildly. If it didn't vary wildly, telemarketers, pyramid schemes, and con men of all types and stripes would simply just go out of business, right? If no one ever fell for these things, these guys just wouldn't make a living and they'd have to do something else. But far from going out of business, these sorts of con men and, and pyramid schemes and scams seem to be multiplying. So what does that tell us about our world? Well, in the immortal words of P.T. Barnum, who said, there's a sucker born every minute. <laughs> does that sound about accurate? There's a sucker born every minute. That was his take on running a circus where someone had said to him, are people actually going to come to watch your circus clowns and your, your freak show and all these types of things? And that was his response, that people will always pay to be entertained. There's a sucker born every minute, he said. And now as sad as it is that people are deceived on a daily basis, and as sad as it is when people are deceived into actually believing that they won a free cruise, <laughs> I hope none of you have fallen into that category, but how much sadder isn't it 
when people are spiritually deceived. You know, we get deceived in the physical realm. That's one thing. Maybe you lost a few bucks as a result. It's not that big of a deal, or hopefully not. But when people are spiritually deceived and go through life blinded by a lie that actually keeps them from knowing God, actually keeps them from receiving his salvation, or perhaps having received his salvation, keeps them from fully living the Christian life that God would desire for them. And so, in response to this, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul writes these words, very straightforward words. He says, Be not deceived. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. A man will reap what he has sown. Now, in medical terms, discernment is the antidote for the disease of deception. Discernment is the antidote for the disease of deception. Now, let me ask you, would it shock you if I told you that we live in a spiritually deceived culture? Does that shock you? Does that surprise you to hear that statement, that we live in a spiritually deceived culture? I don't think anyone's overly shocked by that statement. I believe at varying levels we are aware of the deception that we see in our culture around us. And so we see the different ways that people are deceived, and maybe you can recognize some of them. People are deceived into believing that there is no God, so they can simply live their life however they please. Another prevalent deception is the belief that we can approach God on our own terms. That perhaps by our own good deeds, by being a good person, that's good enough. I can approach God on my own terms. Another deception is the belief that because God is loving, he will not judge or send anyone into an eternity without Christ. Therefore, this same deception goes so far as to say that everyone simply goes to heaven by default. No choice is necessary. Another deception that has long since been accepted by our current culture is that the Bible has no authority and no place in public life. Whether that is in the public school system, whether that is in our courts or our political system, Scripture is no longer welcome. Leave your Bible at the door. The Ten Commandments have no place here, they say. And yet our entire culture was built originally on biblical principles, and yet today it is not welcome in our public sector. You know, an absurd demonstration of just how far this thinking has gone. Uh, You may have seen this in the news headlines just over a month ago. In Quebec, a father actually sued a private Catholic school and took them to court because he wanted to be able to send his child to their school without having to receive any religious instruction. Like, this is the world we are living in today. How much sense does it make to send your child knowing that this is a private religious school, but demand that they not have any religion taught to them? And yet this is the culture we live in, and this case is currently being decided in the courts. You know, as we consider these things, it goes almost without saying that the most recent deception that our culture has wholeheartedly embraced and championed as a good and positive thing is the entire homosexual lifestyle or the LGBT uh, lifestyle as it is commonly referred to today. And sadly, what is now happening is that many Christians, churches, Christian organizations, parachurch organizations are giving in to the pressure of culture around us, falling for the same deception. They are no longer holding to the teaching and authority of Scripture on the subject, 
of God's plan for human marriage and sexuality. The biblical definition, it's not rocket science. It's very plain, it's very clear that God has designed marriage to be between one man and one woman committed to each other for their entire lives. This is what scripture teaches. And on the other side, it speaks clearly on what is outside of the bounds of that. Any sort of sexual deviancy, whether that is sleeping around outside of being married, whether that is heterosexual or homosexual, is sinful. Any other sort of deviancy in any realm, Scripture points out, as being sin. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that any sin is worse than another. All sins are capable of receiving God's forgiveness and grace. But the key thing is, sin needs to be acknowledged for what it is. No one is lobbying the church saying, you need to change your definition of what constitutes adultery. Everyone knows what adultery is. When you sleep with someone who is not your husband or wife, this is adultery. Everyone concedes that it's sin, and yet it happens all the time. But no one's lobbying the church to say, you need to stop saying that that is sin. They just understand that it is, and they do it. Those who choose to do it will do it anyways. And yet today we see a very strong movement in culture saying to the church, you must say that homosexuality is not a sin. Why is that? Why is that? Because they want to be included exclusively within the church or inclusively within the church as well by saying that their behavior is not in fact sinful. But to do so would be to throw away the scripture's teaching on this. So what can we do? We have to hold firm to scripture. And so we see this being the battleground along which so many battles, so many wars are being fought right now between culture, between the church, and those within it who are giving in to pressure, to conform. And this is knocking on our doorstep. It's maybe a little bit removed from Clarny as of yet, and yet in, in Canada around us, you look at any sector of society and it's, the pressure is here in Clarny as well. It's not as overt as of yet as it is in some places. But let me give you another example of where this is happening. In the national news, just about a month ago, Trinity Western University, which you may be familiar with, it's a Christian university based in B.C., has a Christian statement of faith. The Bible is, is sovereign, or, uh, all authoritative to speak to all areas of life. They are based upon the Word of God. And they recently revealed plans to begin a law school as part of their program at their university. However, before the program has even yet begun, it's to launch in 2016, the Ontario Law Society has already had a vote and decided to ban any graduates from Trinity Western's law program from practicing law in Ontario. To ban them completely. They will not allow them to practice law in Ontario. Why not? Here's the reason. Simply because the school policy requires that their students sign a faith covenant affirming the biblical view of marriage, the one that's taught in this book, affirming the biblical view of marriage and that students will commit themselves to abstaining from any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage that the Bible defines. And so many members of the Law Society of Upper Canada's Board of Directors have not only condemned the school's policy to have this covenant of faith, but they have actually labeled the policy as abhorrent. Abhorrent. How dare a Christian university have a statement of faith requiring that their students commit to a biblical view of sexuality? Abhorrent. That is what our culture is saying about what the Bible teaches. 
In response, the university president, Bob Kuhn, is quoted as saying, The irony of the situation is that this assault on a small Christian community is being led by a powerful moral majority who seeks to impose their views and enforce conformity and compliance on Trinity Western University as a price for entering the public arena. And so as we look at these things happening all around us, a Christian university, their students not being recognized in the public sphere because of a biblically held view, in light of all of this, the ability to be spiritually discerning is as big a deal as it has ever been. It is of paramount importance that all Christians grow in discernment because the ramifications are eternal. If you are not discerning the signs of the times that are happening around us in our world today in light of Scripture, then we just become like that proverbial ostrich burying our head in the sand. Jesus told us to be like the watchman, watching the, the, for the day of the Lord to come. And as we see the signs happening around us, we see the pressure in culture, we know that Jesus said in the last days there will come those who are deceiving and being deceived. And this is what we see happening. The ramifications of this for us as Christians are as important and as weighty as they have ever been. Because if we are deceived, then who else is going to carry the truth out to those who so desperately need it? Consider just one ramification of the deception of the church. If the church is deceived into believing that the job of sharing Jesus with others is reserved exclusively for the preacher or the evangelist, and yet God has given them the specific assignment of sharing him with a neighbor or a friend or a co-worker or a family member. However, because they were deceived into believing that it wasn't their job, that person never hears the love of Jesus Christ, never hears the gospel message. And so they go into eternity without Christ. This is just one example of how Christians can be deceived and the ramifications can be eternal. And for this reason, much of what the New Testament authors wrote about to the early Christians was in this regard to not being deceived, to be discerning. A prime example of this is given in the context in which Peter wrote the words to our key verse for this series. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's read the verses preceding verse 18. We'll begin in verse 15. Now, he begins here uh, in verse 15, and then he begins speaking about a fellow apostle, the Apostle Paul. Listen to this. He writes, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. There's a lot going on in this passage, and the first thing I want to draw to your attention is that Peter is not saying that Paul's writing style was the reason that some things were hard to understand. He is simply saying that the subject matter he is talking about is complex and for that reason difficult to understand. In fact, Peter credits the wisdom that Paul had as a gift from God, and he is here vouching for the fact that God has revealed to Paul profound and deep truths. The second thing I want you to take note of is that because of the complexity of much of Paul's teaching, 
which I'm sure you are well familiar with if you've read any of the book of Romans where he speaks about complex matters, about, about predestination and about lordship and, and all of these types of things, the gifting of the Spirit and freedom in Christ. These are complex things that we must dive into and be guided by the Holy Spirit to understand. And yet many people were going into Paul's teachings on these complex matters, and they were going into them and coming out with private interpretations. They were taking Paul's words and distorting and twisting them to mean something that he did not intend for them to mean. And then he goes on to say that they are doing the same with Paul just as they have done with other scriptures. So they weren't just doing this with Paul, they were doing this with other scripture for their own private interpretations as well. Thirdly, Peter goes on to warn his audience to be on their guard. In essence, to be on your guard means to be continually discerning so that they would not be carried away by the same deceptions and fall away from the faith. Now, the question must be asked, why is Peter warning Christians? Why is he warning them of these things? Well, he gives it the answer right within this verse. He says this, because even Christians who have been given God's word and spirit are still capable of being deceived. Are you aware of the fact that even you as a Christian who have received the Lord Jesus as your Savior are still capable of being deceived? We are all still capable of being deceived if we do not ground our understanding in the Word of God, seek the Lord's will in prayer. We too can be deceived if we rely on only our own wisdom. And so already knowing that discernment is the antidote to the disease of deception, how can we grow in discernment so that we will not be deceived? Well, the first thing we must do is humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. The parable is told of this old minister who survived the Jamestown flood. And he just loved to tell everyone the story of his harrowing escape in great detail. And he loved to tell how as the flood waters rose, he had faithfully kept preaching until the water had covered the pews and was lapping at the pulpit. And how he had finally escaped by climbing into the bell tower of the church where he had continued to preach and encourage the people below. And everywhere he went, he would talk about this to anyone who would listen. And so one day he dies, and he goes to heaven. And in a meeting there, all the saints have gathered together to share their life experiences. And the old minister was quite excited by this, and so he goes up to Peter, who is naturally in charge, and he asks Peter if it might be all right if he could share his exciting story of how he survived the Jamestown flood. Well, Peter hesitated for a moment and then said, Yes, yeah, I, I think I can fit you in. I'll pencil you in right before Noah. Talk about stealing your thunder. <laughs> he thought his escape from the Jamestown flood was a big deal. Just wait until he hears Noah's story. In James chapter 4, verse 6, we read, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we see here the first step to growing in discernment is to have a proper view of ourselves. For if, we, for if we cannot discern the sin which lurks even within our own hearts, the deception that may even be there today, how can we even begin to discern anything else properly? If we have not allowed God to judge our own hearts and see if there's anything there that doesn't belong, how can we look at the world around us and do any better? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. 
Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And so before any one of us goes so far as to say, I will never be deceived, I will never fall away, I would like you to remember a few examples. One of those being Simon Peter, who declared to the Lord Jesus, I will never forsake you, I will never betray you, I will never deny you, I will go to the death. And in light of this, we must remember, be not wise in your own eyes. We must have a proper view of ourselves and our own weakness. I'd like to share with you the words from an author by the name of Francis Frangipane, who wrote this. Whatever lofty spiritual plane you imagine that you are on, remember, Adam was in paradise when he fell. Before your increased knowledge and religious experience make you overly self-confident, recall that Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote three books of scripture, yet he fell. Yes, even in your deepest worship of the Almighty, do not forget in long ages past, Lucifer himself was once in heaven pouring out praises to God. We have all seen many who have fallen. Jesus warned that the love of many would grow cold. Do not presume that it cannot happen to you. Our enemy has been deceiving mankind for thousands of years. These sobering facts put into such clear terms should give us all pause to humble ourselves before God. To humble ourselves and ask, is there any area that I have been deceived that I am unaware of? Is there anything within my life and my daily habits where I am actively being deceived and I don't even know it? Is there any area where I am currently at risk of being deceived that I have not yet properly discerned so that I can be on guard against it? And we must allow God and His Holy Spirit to search our hearts in the light of Scripture. And as we do this, don't be too quick to think about how others are being deceived and let yourself off the hook. This is the easiest thing to do when these self-evaluations come up. We say, well, I know of so-and-so who's being deceived, and that guy's being deceived, and the world's sure being deceived. But no, look into your own heart. This is about you. You must humble yourself before God. I must humble myself before God. Because we need His grace. Unless we humble ourselves, we cannot receive it. Remember, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And let me be clear. If you're proud, conceited, arrogant, stuck-up, know-it-all, then God is resisting you. God is actually withholding His grace from you. Not because He doesn't want you to have it, but because He can't give grace to someone who doesn't think that they need it. Remember Jesus' parable of two men praying in the temple. The man who received grace was not the one who prayed with arms outstretched, the righteous Pharisee. No, it was the man who bowed his head, a tax collector, and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was the one whose prayer was heard and answered. Humility is necessary to receive grace. So humble yourself before God. Receive his grace and allow that to be the foundation of our discernment. Secondly, Stay firmly anchored to the sound teaching of God's word. Peter warned his readers that there were people who were twisting Paul's teaching as well as other scriptures to fit what they wanted to say. He wrote much the same to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He wrote these words, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Let me ask you, when you are unsure of something, where do you look for the answers? Where do you, where, where do you go? What's your first instinct when you're not clear on something? Is the Bible and its authority primary in your life or secondary? Where do you go first for the answers? You know, I, I think of this in so many spheres of life that even Christians begin going with popular opinion over the Word of God. And as we consider these things, we must remember, the Bible must be primary to seek the answers we are looking for. I am constantly surprised, I, I just have to say this, that I am constantly surprised by how many Christians, even those who I have gone to Bible college with and I talk to later on in my life, how casual a view they have towards the authority of Scripture. An almost indifferent attitude towards what the Bible plainly says about something. You know, for example, a, a passage that speaks so clearly, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortionists will enter the kingdom of God. It's an exhaustive, extensive list that speaks clearly on a whole host of different things. But yet, I know many Christians who see little wrong with fornicating. And in case you don't know what that is, that is having sex outside of marriage. Or I know of many Christians who believe that homosexuality is completely okay, even within the church. Or many others who think that getting drunk on occasion is no big deal. But how can this be, since the Bible speaks so clearly on these things being harmful and wrong? How can this be? I believe it's because, as Christians, too many have become unanchored from the sound teaching of God's word. Now, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12, speaks to God's word discerning our hearts and our minds, not the other way around. We must allow God's word to set the, the, the course for our life. We cannot go to Scripture and tell it what it says. It speaks to us. And I want you to listen again to 2 Peter 3, verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away. That term, carried away, is a nautical term that, of course, Peter, being a former fisherman, uses to illustrate a boat floating on the water. James, another former fisherman, uses the same type of terminology in James 1, verses 6, when he says that a man who doubts God is like a wave of the sea being tossed and blown by the wind. Now, go back to the picture of a ship. I heard a great speaker, David Kinnaman, use this illustration of a ship being blown on the water to not be carried away. Now, if this Bible, the Word of God, is our ship, and we, and we see this here as our foundation, we have another boat above it, and here we are tethered to the Word of God. We are the ship on top of the water. The Word of God is our anchor, and as culture blows us one way, we find ourselves over here maybe, but we're anchored to the word of God, it pulls us back. Then culture blows us another way, but we're still anchored to the word of God and it pulls us back. But what happens when we sever the anchor, the cord? 
Suddenly, we're still floating up here, and the first thing we do when we sever the cord, we say, hey, it's not so bad. Nothing happened. We're still here. We can still see the Bible. It's down there. It's still good. It's just not all authoritative. It's mostly authoritative. Then culture hits us. We go a little bit further. It's still okay. We can still see the Bible. It's still mostly authoritative, just not quite as authoritative as we thought it was originally, but it's still pretty authoritative. Culture hits us again. Oh, uh, it's, you know, sort of, sort of, kind of authoritative, but not as, you know, we don't get dogmatic about the Word of God being so important. And finally, we've blown so far away from the Word of God, we can't even see it anymore. That's what happens when we sever the cord between the Bible being the foundation for everything that we do and decide as Christians in life. We have to remain firmly anchored to the Word of God. This is integral to our ability to discern anything. Do you love the Word of God? I do. I get excited about talking about it. Like, I love diving into it. You know, love the Word of God. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Pray it. Speak it out. Have it going through your head and your heart daily. This is what God wants for you. This is what the Holy Spirit will use as fuel in your life to be able to not only be discerning, but to be empowered. It is on the Word of God. I want you to listen again to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. And this is my prayer. This is my fervent desire for you, that your love may abound. Not just trickle, that your love may be an avalanche, that it may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. We need God's word. This is my prayer for you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we humble ourselves. And Lord, we confess that there have been places in our lives where we have been deceived. And Lord, we confess that there may even be places in our lives currently where we are being deceived that we are not yet aware of. And so, Lord, in humility, we ask, Father, for you to search our hearts. Look at our lives. Look at our habits. Look at our thought life. Look at our our relationships, Lord, our our dating relationships, our marriages, Lord, our every, every relationship, Father. Would you examine if there's some place we are being deceived? And, Father, would you illuminate that? Would you show us, Father? Would you show us the right path by your word and your Holy Spirit that we must take to follow you? And so, Father, we pray that you would do this work within us today and as we go forward from here. Would you, O Lord, give us a renewed, just uh, an inner passion, a burning desire to know your word better, to make sure that we are firmly rooted and established upon your word, that we are anchored to it, that we are not blown so far away that we can no longer see it, Father, but that it would anchor us firm, even whatever storms culture and the world throws at us. And so, Father, we pray that we would be that kind of a a lighthouse for the world that is so storm-tossed, Lord, actively being deceived. Would we be a bastion of truth as we stand firm upon your word? May we hold it out for all who would see. Thank you, Lord, that you use us. I pray for discernment. I pray for blessing for each one. In In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.